Is there a desire in you to not just attend revival, but live in revival? Welcome to the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Saldivar. I've been in revival for the last 10 years, as well as traveling and being a part of many revivals throughout the United States. I'm going to be sharing with you how to live a radical lifestyle of revival on a daily basis. Very, very excited about doing our verse by verse. One of the reasons why is people are writing me saying, our whole family is doing the verse by verse together. My kids are doing it. My kids, think about this, are excited about the Bible. My kids actually want to follow along. They want to highlight. They want to circle. So this is one of the things that I felt like God, why God told me to do the verse by verse is to get people hungry for the word, get people excited for the word. This is the foundation we must build on. We're not building on the foundation of Isaiah or on my YouTube channel or on my teachings. We're building on the foundation of the word of God. So we're going to be going into the book of John part four. If you don't know, I'm working towards preaching every single verse right in the chat out of the New Testament live on YouTube. That's the goal. Has to be live. Has to be on YouTube. Every single verse. We've already done the book of Revelation every verse, the book of Acts every verse, the book of Romans every verse, the book of Ephesians every verse, the book of Philippians, Colossians, and they're all on the channel. It's like over what 50 60 hours now all on the channel and now we are doing the book of john i put a lot of time into these it feels kind of bad that these are our lowest viewed streams but you know what we are building a foundation we are preaching to those that are hungry and so if you're hungry for god get your bible out what version new king james version that's the version that we're going to be using we are going into the book of john john who wrote also the book of revelation he also wrote john first uh, john second john and third john one of my favorite people in all of the bible my two favorite books of the Bible are the book of John and the book of Revelation. This was written about 80 to 90 years after Jesus died. John wrote his gospel. So we are starting. We want to do a long recap because we have a lot of stuff to cover tonight. We're going to try to get through two chapters. I'm praying that we can get through two chapters tonight. That would be absolutely amazing, but we are going to see. But I'll put it on screen if you don't have your Bible with you. And I'm still getting used to this whole putting the Bible on screen thing, but it's okay. We're going to work through it. We're starting in uh, chapter 5, verse 1. So everybody right now in the chat, pull out your Bibles, chapter 5, verses 1. We are going into the man, a man healed at the pool of Bethesda. So let's go uh, verses 1 through 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay, look at this, moving of water. I'm sorry, in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, and paralyzed waiting for the moving of the water for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease they have and look at verse 5 now a certain man was there who had an infirmity for 38 years here we have a man at the pool for 38 years had this infirmity he's laying there at the pool now bethesda means the place of outpouring or the place of mercy this would be like the modern day church the church should be a place of mercy it should be a place of the outpouring of the holy spirit and so this place literally meant the place of outpouring so we can symbolically say this would be a type of what we would call like what the church should be a place where you can receive the mercy of god the grace of god you could get experience deliverance by the way the church should be a place where we could uh, ex receive and experience deliverance it should be a place we could receive and experience the healing power of god it should be a place where we don't just get coffee and donuts and build relationships but we can be healed restored and renewed by the power of the holy spirit the church was never intended according to scripture to be just a nice place for your family it was never intended to be this place where we have all these programs and events and we babysit adults 
This was never God's intention where we had this one hour, once a week program where you give God your leftover time. The church was meant to be a place where you could experience God's presence and you can come together and worship and read the Bible and eat together and experience the presence of God and have prayer meetings and the world would be changed as a consequence. God doesn't have like a plan B. The church is God's change agent in the earth. Jesus said to build my church. So the church is not going anywhere. The Bible says, do not forsake the assembling together of the brethren. And this idea that church is this one hour thing once a week, and then we ignore God all week long, could not be farther from biblical truth. This is not the, the gospel that Jesus preached was, I'm going to build a one hour program. God is wanting to build a 24 hour day lifestyle in you where you live a life like his son. So this is the intention of the church. It's a training center to raise up soldiers in the army of God, a hospital for the broken and the hurting, a place where we can experience the presence of God. Jesus said, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? The first words recorded out of Jesus's mouth was, why did you search for me? Did you not know I would be in my father's house? Why did you need to look? So we know Jesus loves to be in the father's house. Jesus is in the church. He's at the church. He's with us. He's in us. But here's the crazy part. Think about this. This is the place of outpouring. The place of mercy, what it means, the actual meaning of the word, and in a place where there should be healing and breakthrough, the place is full of blind, lame, and paralyzed people. Just because something has a name or a title doesn't mean that's the reality. Just because we call it a church or we say it's Calvary so-and-so or it's First Baptist this doesn't mean that's the reality. There's a lot of places that are calling themselves churches that are not actually churches. Just because we say somebody is an apostle or prophet or pastor or teacher doesn't mean they are. So in one sense, you have the place of outpouring in grace. In the other sense, the place is full of lame, paralyzed, and blind people. And it can't, we can't have this in the church. The church can't be a place that's full of the blind. It can't be a place that's full of the spiritually lame. Some of you are in this broadcast right now and you are one of these types of people. The Bible says there's five porches with blind, lame, and paralyzed. And these are five types of people spiritually I've seen in the church in my travels. And I've been in this category. I've been the blind guy. I've been lame. I've been paralyzed. And one of the reasons why I preach with such a passion is because I spent years, friend, I was raised in church. I was raised my entire life. At 16, I decided I'm not going to church no more. So I'd schedule my work when there was church so I didn't have to go to church. But from the ages of zero to 16, Isaiah Saldivar was in church and I decided one day I'm going to turn 16 and become an atheist and not believe in God. It's going to be cool to just deny God. But I was raised in the church, but I was blind spiritually. I was lame spiritually. I was paralyzed spiritually. And some of you are spiritually blind. You've lost your ability to see what's right in front of you. You've lost the ability to see the fullness of what God has for you. And really one of the things that's caused us to be blind spiritually is social media. Like how could you see what God is doing and how could you be a part of a move of God if you're like this all day long? Staring at this thing all day long with our heads down. Spiritually blind to what God is doing. Spiritually blind to what God is saying. Spiritually blind, no desire, no vision. Lost our vision, lost our passion, lost our desire to help other people. We're not even moved when people are hurting and broken all around us. We walk right past them. Family going to hell, friends unsaved, coworkers dying, coworkers hurting, coworkers sick in body, demonized people all around us, and we're just unfazed. 
We're unmoved. There's no call to action. There's no desire to say, I'm going to go to my neighbor and help them. I'm going to go to the person at work. And when I say neighbor, that literally means people in proximity of you. I'm not talking about your next door neighbor. I'm talking about the people that are around you every single day. We are blind to the hurt and the pain and the trials that they are going through. Meanwhile, we live our lives like everybody's fine, like nothing's wrong. What is it that has stole your vision? What is it that has taken the passion that you once had to go do the work of God? Like there was a time where you were just passionate about this. You couldn't wait to go witness. You couldn't wait to go to the prayer meeting. You couldn't wait to start fasting. You couldn't wait. You had a zeal to go to do mission work and to go work in an orphanage and to go work in another nation and help people and preach the gospel. But now some of you just show up to church. You have no real vision. You have no real passion and you are completely blind. The Bible says the devil blinds the mind of those that don't believe, of those that are just no, no faith, no belief that God still wants to use you. I want to tell someone that tonight, I believe God wants to open up your eyes. I believe God wants to cure you of spiritual blindness. Now, in the story, they were physically blind, no doubt about it. But spiritually, there's many of us that are at the place of grace, the place of outpouring. We're in church, we're in service, yet we are blind spiritually. And I remember when God opened my eyes and I realized there's so much more to life than my self-obsessed, self-absorbed, living for myself. There's so much more to life. Where has this been? How have I not seen this? And some of you, tonight God wants to open your eyes again. If you've gone blind, if the devil has blinded your mind, blinded your eyes, blinded your heart, then God wants to open up your eyes. I'm tired of sleeping. I want my eyes to be open. I want to see what God is doing. I want ears to hear. I want eyes to see. I don't want to live my life sleeping in the light some of you have fallen asleep right in the light and God is waking you up. Tonight is your wake-up call. You for so long had no passion. Tonight God is saying, I'm speaking directly to you. I don't even know how I got on this broadcast. God drew you to this broadcast. God brought you on here so that I can tell you that tonight is your night to wake up from the slumber, that now is the high time. Our salvation is nearer than we first believed. So blind and lame. Lame means you're unable to walk normally because of injured feet, injured foot, injured legs. And so you're just lame. You're not able to walk out the Christian life. Friend, the Christian walk is a walk that's supernatural. When you're not walking in the supernatural life that God's intended for you, the Christian life, then I'm sorry to say it, but you are lame. And I've been lame many times where I'm just like, I'm not walking out the call that God has for me. I'm not doing what God has called me to do. I don't want to live my life with lame Christianity. I don't want to live my life spiritually lame. I want to do all that God has for me. I want to go all the places. I want to walk out healing. I want to walk out deliverance. I want to walk out holiness. I want to walk out consecration. I don't want to be a lame Christian. Like, I don't want to stand in heaven one day. And look at all the great men and women of God I read about in the Bible. And, and next to them, just be lame. Be like, man, I didn't do anything for God. Yes, I was still saved, but barely. Like Paul says, you barely escape the flames and there's no reward. It gets burned up. Like, just lame. So do I look at my life, and this is not to judge you. This is not to say, oh, you're, but do I look at my life and just say, man, I'm a lame, I'm a lame Christian. I'm lame. I don't walk out the call God has for me. My feet are injured. My legs are injured. I'm not wearing the shoes of peace. I'm not doing the things that God's called me to do. There's so many times where I'm like, Isaiah, stop being so lame and lazy. Do what God has called you to do. Get some tenacity in you and get some discipline in you. Don't be lame. 
Type that in the chat. Don't be lame. Let's walk this thing out. I don't just want to talk it. I want to walk it. So we have the spiritually. I'm saying spiritually. They were physically. The blind, the lame, and also the paralyzed that were sitting. So get the scene here. Now paralyzed, we all know what this means, but I want you to think of it this way. It means to be or it causes you to be stuck in the same place for an extended period of time. That's a word right there. So when I'm spiritually paralyzed, just like some of us tonight, you've been in church for years, but you've been in the same place. You've never gone anywhere with God. You've never advanced. You're going to prayer. You're involved, but you're in the same place for years. Some of you have been in the same place with your prayer life for years. You've been in the same place with your witnessing life and your walk with God. There's been no movement, no growth. You're just literally in the same place. There's no advancing. And that is when you are spiritually lame. There should be progress in our life. I should be able to look back and say, I'm not where I used to be. Now, I'm not where I want to be. I'm a million miles from perfection, please. I'm, I'm preaching to myself, but I'm not where I used to be. Now, if I look back five years, one year, and I'm in the same place I used to be, I'm spiritually paralyzed. I'm in the same. The people that were paralyzed in the Bible, they were just stuck in one place. People had to carry them from place to place. Don't rely on someone else to carry you. Decide that I don't, I don't want to live my life paralyzed and stuck. And some of you, it's been fear that has caused you to be paralyzed. It's anxiety that's caused you to be paralyzed. It's anger that's caused you to be paralyzed. I don't know what caused you to be spiritually paralyzed, but many of us get paralyzed by unforgiveness. And then like 10 years, you've been hurt by that person. You still have no relationship with them or maybe a guy or girl hurt you. And now you are 10 years single because the last boyfriend you were with 10 years ago hurt you. So you're just paralyzed in relationships or maybe you have a hard time trusting people because somebody hurt you. And now you are socially paralyzed. You were hurt or somebody offended you or someone said something about you or made fun of you or bullied you. And so you're paralyzed. But God, I believe, wants to cure you, wants to heal you, wants to deliver you, wants to break the paralysis off of you. Now, this place was a place full of people that were content with their bondage. It became a place where they all hung out. And here's a man for 38 years, 38 years, most likely Hundreds of times this guy has been there and hundreds of others were there with him as well. But think about this. This guy probably never imagined that today would be the day that, got, that he got healed. 38 years in the same place, 38 years in dysfunction, full of dysfunction with dysfunctional people all around him gathered together. But this would be the day where everything changes. Now they're waiting around and we know waiting doesn't solve problems. They're waiting around at the pool, waiting. This is what they're waiting for, an angel to come stir the pool. Now I won't go into de to depth on this, but this was a fable. This was a myth. This was not a biblical reality. When the Bible says an angel would go down, it's talking about what the people believed. And if you go and look any new translations, they've actually taken this portion out because they believe it's not true to the text. But we have to, as people stop waiting, they were waiting for an angel to stir the pool, believing a myth, Stop waiting for someone to come stir us up, waiting for somebody to provoke us, waiting for someone to pray for us, waiting for someone to give us a job offer, waiting. We, we kind of live our lives like these people, waiting by the pool, waiting for something to happen, when in reality, I'm, I'm not going to wait any longer. I'm actually going to go out and do it. It's time to stop waiting, whether it's for your ministry to grow. One day, I'm just going to get this promotion, or one day, I'm, God's going to come to me and say this. God already came to you and said that. God already gave you his word and told you to go lay hands on the sick. 
to go make disciples, to go witness to people, to go preach the gospel. So we live in this perpetual cycle of waiting for something magical to happen. An angel is going to show up and stir the pool. When in reality, there was no angel. There was no one coming. It was, it was a complete myth. No one was getting healed and they were still waiting around. Don't wait around for somebody else to minister to your family. Don't wait around because life is so fast. I'm 31 years old. I feel like just yesterday I was 16. You're going to, going to blink. 10 years will pass and you'll say, I'm still waiting on God to give me a word. I'm still waiting on someone to come stir me. I'm still waiting on God to do this instead of saying today is the day. Now, this was an old legend. This is what the Bible history site said. Okay, they're a reputable place for scholarly work, but this is what they said about it. They said, legend had it that an angel would come down and stir the water. The first person to enter the pool after stirring of the water was made well from whatever disease they were inflicted of. But the Bible does not teach this actually happened. John chapter 5 verse 4 is not included in most modern translations and it's unlikely to be part of the original text. Rather, the superstitious belief probably arose from the pool's association with a nearby temple. So this idea that an angel was coming was actually not what the Bible was saying. This is something that actually never happened. And in modern translations, they've taken this out because it's def it was an old time myth that people were waiting for. And a lot of us have put our hope in myths. We've put our hope in stories. We put our hope in things that are not biblical. We put our trust in things that are not biblical. We're waiting for things to happen that are not biblical. And instead of waiting around, today is the day to look to Jesus. Today is the day to be saved. 38 years putting his hope in a myth focused on the pool instead of the promise of God. So what is your pool? What is the place that you're stuck at? The place where you're putting your hope into something, into something that can't deliver you, into something that can't heal you. Maybe your pool is drinking or drugs or girls or money or job or retirement, and you're putting all of your life's effort and hope into that, and that thing can't cure you of your spiritual disease called sin or your spiritual blindness or being paralyzed or being spiritually lame. It's time to put our focus off of the pool, stop being distracted by other things that we're waiting on to deliver us. Like if you're using TikTok to deliver you from boredom, then TikTok is an idol for you. If you're using Netflix as an escape, and I totally get it, an escape from your reality, then Netflix is your refuge. If you're using your job as a way of running from your problems, then that is your pool. That is what you're putting your hope in. Our hope should not be in a job in TikTok or in Netflix. Our hope should be in Christ. He's our refuge. He's our strength. He's the person that we run to. 38 years, how hopeless. But today would be the day that Jesus does a miracle. Today could be the day. Time is not an obstacle for God. 20 years, maybe you've been waiting. 30 years, maybe you've been waiting. Six years, maybe you've been waiting. But today could be the day. I'm just saying that your body gets healed. Today could be the day. Do you think this man woke up and said, today's the day after 38 years, somebody would come to my dysfunction, to my pool, to my place and come heal me? But there's some of you in the chat that have been waiting for years for your children to encounter God. Years for that depression to be broken off of you. Years for your eyes to be open. Years for the, that time where God would encounter you in a powerful way. And I'm just saying, what if by faith today is the day that God turns everything around? What if today is the day where you get your breakthrough, where you get your healing, where you get your deliverance, where you get your miracle? I want to see God move today. I'm not waiting for tomorrow. I'm not waiting for another hour, two hours. I want to see a move of God in my time. I want to see a move of God in my life. I want to be a part of revival in my generation. 
Let's go verse 6. This is why we end up taking an hour per chapter because I go this long. Verse 6. Look at this. When Jesus saw him lying there, and look at what it says, and knew that he'd already been in that condition a long time. And that's going to help some of you tonight. You think God doesn't know you've been hurting? God has no clue what I've been going through. God doesn't know how long I've been in this relationship and I've been hurting. How long I've cried myself to sleep. It says God already knew he'd been in the condition for a long time. And then look what Jesus says. He said to him, do you want to be made well? Now we're going to talk about this because it sounds to be like, what kind of question is this? Everybody wants to be made well. But he says this, do you want to be made well? Verse seven, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. Now I want you to notice it was an instant miracle. It was an instant healing. Jesus looks at the man and says, I know you've been here. I can tell you've been hurting. Jesus knew he'd been here a long time. Now, some of us have fooled everyone else into thinking that we're not hurting. Everyone else into thinking that we're not struggling. Everybody around us doesn't realize we're spiritually blind. We're spiritually lame. We're spiritually paralyzed. But Jesus saw a man that he knew had been sick for a very long time, struggling with the same thing for a very long time, and was moved by compassion. He can just tell by looking at him. And some of you, just by looking at you, it's easy to tell you've been hurting. By the way you respond to people, by the way that you act, it's been years you've been hurting a while. Some of you are only in this stream because you've been hurting for a while, because you feel broken or you feel the pain or the sting of your situation. And I want to tell you that our God is a compassionate God, that Jesus wept over people and that God cares about your hurting. You might say, God doesn't care that I'm sick in body. God doesn't care that I'm hurting. But God looked at the people that were sheep without a shepherd and was broken, was crying, was moved with compassion, was wounded. I'm telling you right now, you don't need to hide the pain. God knows what you're going through. God sees the hurt. You might as well just be honest with God, throw yourself at his feet and say, God, I've been hurting for a long time. I've had unforgiveness for a long time. I've had bitterness for a long time, but I know that you are the only one that can heal me. You are the only one that can deliver me. You are the only one that can restore my body. You are the only one that can make me whole. And the years of pain and hurt, I've seen God do this. God can take it in one second, literally in one second, 38 years of this man says, I have no one to help me. I have no one to pick me up. And every time I try to go get healed, somebody gets there before me. Every time I'm about to have a breakthrough, someone else gets a breakthrough. Have you been there? Chat, where are you tonight? Talk to me in the chat where everybody else has a breakthrough. And I want one. I'm trying to get one. But every, somebody always beats me to it. Somebody always gets in front of me. Somebody's always better than me and faster than me. So I have no one to help me. But the, that wasn't the question. The question is, would you like to be made well? Now, why would Jesus ask this question? Maybe because the guy didn't look very desperate. Jesus asked him what we would say, well, that's kind of a stupid question, but it wasn't a stupid question because he didn't look very desperate. I mean, who wants to stay depressed? Who wants to stay angry? Who wants to stay paralyzed? Who wants to stay in their addiction? Who wants to stay in their pain? This man maybe didn't look desperate like he wanted breakthrough, like he wanted something to change, like he wanted a miracle. Now there's a million people that God hasn't healed that don't want to be healed, that don't want to see God, that don't want to serve God. This man was waiting around, maybe comfortable in the position he was in. But Jesus is asking him and asking us, do you want to be made well? Do you want to receive deliverance? Do you want to live a life of joy and freedom? 
then maybe we should act like it. In other words, do you want your family to get, to get saved? And we all say yes, but then it's like, we never pray for them. So we say we want our family saved. The Bible says we can intercede on their behalf and we can pray for other people that God would open their eyes and God would save them. We don't pray for our family, but we want them to be saved. And if God came to us tonight and said, do you want your family saved? We would all say yes, but we don't act like it. So do we really want them saved? So again, the question sounds weird. Do you want to be made well? Well, of course you want to be made well, but we oftentimes don't act like it. Do you want to be delivered? Well, yeah, I want to be delivered. Well, then act like you want to be delivered. Find someone to pray for you. Cry out to God. Do a fast. Pray. Do you want God to use you? We all say, yeah, I want God to use us mightily. We don't read our Bibles. We don't pray. We don't live right. We don't walk consecrated before God. We just live sloppy, sloppy lives, doing whatever we want, like as if God is nowhere near, nowhere, doesn't matter to us. But yet we say we want God to use us, but we never put ourselves in position for God to use us. So God is asking us, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be healed? So it's time to start acting like it. If the man was desperate, he probably would have drug himself to the pool. He wouldn't have even waited for someone to carry him. It's, it's easy to tell when somebody's desperate. When you do altar calls, who wants healing and breakthrough? And you waltz slowly to the altar. Or you don't even come to the altar. You're just like, ah, if it happens, it happens. There's, there, and I know religious people are going to hate this. They, they hate a lot of the stuff I preach. There's something about desperation. There's something about pushing your way through a crowd and grabbing the hem of his garment. There's something about blind Bartimaeus shouting, son of David, have mercy on me. And everyone says, dude, shut up. They're telling blind Bartimaeus to shut up, but he, the Bible says he shouts even louder. So there's something that happens when you get so tired of living the same way where you get desperate, say, I don't care what anybody else thinks about me. I am going after God. Now his answer, Jesus's question is, do you want to be made well? That's the question. It's a yes or no question. That's very simple. The man's answer is, I can't, which is not what Jesus asks. Of course, you can't do what God's asking. Of course, only he can do it. But I feel, and I feel this at times like, I could never do what God's asking for me. But that's not the question. The question is, do you want to serve me? Do you want to be obedient? Yes or no? Do you want to be delivered? God didn't say he needs your help. God didn't say he needs you to make it happen. He's saying, do you want it? Only he can do it. But we have to stop telling God, I can't. This is what we always tell God. God says, do you want to be healed? The man says, I can't. I have no one to put me in the pool. Just like the woman at the well. Well, how are you going to do it, God? You have no bucket to draw from. Why are we telling God he can't do what only he can do? He can do it. Stop telling him he can't. I'm constantly telling God, I can't do things. Isaiah, I want you to go do this. I can't. I can't preach good. I can't study good. I can't help people. I can't be this. I can't be that. I can't, I can't, I can't. And God says, you can't in your strength, but when my spirit empowers you, when you partner with the Holy Spirit, all things are possible. The disciples say, who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, it's impossible. No one can be saved. But with God, all things are possible. So you're right. You're right. You can't do it. I can't preach. I can't prophesy. I can't do deliverance. I can't be a good father. I can't be a good husband. I can't be a good anything without God. But with God, all things are possible. So he takes our can'ts and, and puts them into I can. And this is the question. Do you want to be made well? And the man says this. This is the man. So I can't do it. Then he says, I have no one to help me. The man blames other people for the fact that he doesn't have an answer. How many times do we do this? We start blaming other people for the fact that we've been 38 years in dysfunction. 
Some of you, 20 years, you've been spiritually lame, blind, and paralyzed, and you blame other people. Maybe somebody did something to you, hurt you. Maybe there's a reason why you're sick in body. But we have to stop blaming other people saying, I have no one to help me, so I can't do what you've called me to do. The only help you need is standing right in front of you, and that's Jesus. The only help this man needed was standing right in front of him. It's time to stop making excuses. Now, he thought Jesus would be a helper, but realize he's our healer, not just a helper. So he's, the guy's looking for someone to help him to the pool, but Jesus comes and says, my plan is not to carry you to the pool. My plan is to heal you. His whole question is to convince Jesus to carry him to the pool. Because he's going, do you want to be healed? Well, I can't. I need someone to carry me to the pool. He's trying to tell Jesus, I need you to carry me to the pool. And Jesus goes, I'm not a helper. I'm a healer. I don't, I'm, I'm talking about getting to a place where you don't need no one to carry you. Where with God, all things are possible where you can do it on your own, where you can say, Jesus, help me do this. I need your help. I need your power. You're not, you're not a crutch for me. You're my everything. So the man wants Jesus to follow his plan, and his plan is having someone carry him to the pool. But Jesus goes, I got a better plan. I have a better plan than carrying you to the pool. I'm going to make it so you don't even need to get to the pool. I have a better plan, and I want to tell someone this tonight. God has a better, better plan for your marriage. He has a better plan for your kids. He has a better plan for your job, your life, your ministry. Put down your plan and pick up his plan. I've realized this, that God's plan, when God tells me to do something, his plan is a thousand times better than my plan. His way is a thousand times better than I, my way. I have a plan. Isaiah Saldivar has a way that he wants to do things, a way that he wants to strategize, and then God's plan is always infinitely greater. The Bible says he does exceedingly, abundantly, above all we can ask, think, or imagine. So there's no comparison to what I'm trying to do with my life and what God wants to do with my life. Imagine God's plan for you. Imagine in one year or two years, if you took prayer serious, if you took God serious, if you took his word serious, if you took listening to his voice seriously, if you broke out of the religious box and said, God, I want you to use me. Imagine what God can do for your life. Now, here's Jesus' command. Rise up, pick up your mat, and walk. So the first thing is rise up. This is the first thing that we need to do. Get off the ground. Stop laying around, falling on the ground all the time. Don't live your life constantly in the dirt, constantly on the ground. And, and when you talk about the ground, you think of the world, you think of dirt, you think of sin. The Bible says a righteous man falls seven times but gets back up. Why do we spend so much time on the ground? Like, think about how much we fall or stumble or backslide or whatever you want to call it. It's like, man, I've been struggling for the last few months, right? And we get up, seven times we fall, we get up, and then we, we're like three weeks, am I preaching to anybody? A month, we're good. And then we fall again, back into that pornography, back into that addiction, back into the drugs, back into the drinking. We go back to that abusive relationship, and then we get up, and then we fall again. And we're on the ground, and God is saying, it's time to rise up. It's time to rise up as a church. It's time to rise up as a people. It's time to stop being more comfortable on the ground. Some of you are more comfortable on the ground than you are on your feet. Get off the ground. Stop falling all the time. Do something for God. Like our spiritual position should not be laying down. Our spiritual position should not be sitting down. It should be rising up. So he says, rise up, pick up your mat. Pick up your mat. What is your mat? This is where they would lay on. This was the comfort zone. This is where they would sleep. This is the crutch. Somebody tonight needs to pick up their mat, pick up their comfort zone, and toss it out the window. Get rid of your mat tonight. He says, pick up your mat, 
and walk. Now, so we don't just rise up. We don't just pick up our mat, get off our comfort zone. We walk, we go do something. We pray, we fast, we heal the sick, we raise the dead, we cleanse the lepers, we preach the gospel. This is the call of God. Someone says glitching. If it's glitching or frozen, go ahead and refresh the broadcast. I know there's a couple people on the broadcast saying it's freezing for them and it's glitching. I'll rewatch it and see what's going on with the stream, but just go ahead and rewatch the broadcast. It looks like it's going fine on my end. So it's timed to get out of your comfort zone. Rise up. Pick up your bed. Okay, a lot of people are saying it's freezing. Hopefully that it stops freezing. It's time to walk. And look at what the miracle was. Instantly, the man was healed. No time to wait. 38 years he's been waiting, and he didn't have to wait another moment. Instantly healed. And God instantly, okay, it's refreshed, no glitching here. Okay, it's fine. God instantly delivered me. God instantly healed me. God, God can do it instantly. God can do it right now. God can deliver, heal, save, all of it in an instant. The man didn't go to therapy. Now, I know people are going to get mad about this. The man didn't go to therapy. The man didn't go to rehab. The man didn't go through months of counseling. The man didn't have to learn to walk. Think about this. If you've been lame, paralyzed for 38 years, you don't know how to walk. You have to learn how to walk. He didn't have to learn to walk. Instantly, everything was healed and restored. This is what I'm asking the Lord tonight. Lord, can you do it instantly for us? Right now, instant breakthrough, instant deliverance. Do it for our kids. Do it for our marriage. Everything was instant. Now, the man was waiting for an angel, but God something, got something 10 times better. Jesus always goes above our expectation. Waiting for an angel, but got something 10 times better. Maybe you came in wanting a manifestation, wanting an angel, wanting a miracle, wanting a healing, or you went to church looking for this, but you're going to get something 10 times better than a manifestation. And that thing that's 10 times better is Jesus. Jesus is the thing that is 10 times better. Jesus is the way. He's the truth, and he is the life. Let's look at John we're going to move a little bit quicker here. Let me make sure that I have this up here. John verse 10. So the man instantly rises up and walks. Now, who do you think is going to have a problem with what's going on here? Obviously, the religious people. Verse 10. The Jews therefore said to him, who was cured, this is what they say. Okay, the man, look at this, gets healed completely. 38 years this guy's been there. Everybody knows this. And this is what the religious people focus on, and it's no different today. There's modern-day Pharisees all over the internet, all over YouTube, all over our churches out here. And God does miracles, delivers people. Like, I literally have people, okay, for example, that will be doing deliverance videos, and they will get delivered and testify. God delivered me. I've never been the same. And religious people will be like, oh, that's not how you do deliverance. Oh, what? look at these false prophets. I'm like, that's what you took out of it? You watch somebody testify how God delivered them. They went from being suicidal to they no longer are suicidal. And you got out of that. Oh, deliverance isn't biblical. Oh, these people are false prophets. Like, how could you hear a testimony, see somebody get delivered and then say that it's fake? And that sounds crazy, but people do it every single day on the internet. People constantly do that. So they're not worried about the miracle. They're focused on the trivial, small issues like religious people today instead of the fact, oh, wow. 38 years, this guy couldn't walk, but now he is walking. Religious people have never changed. The Jews said, who was cured? And they want to know, who was cured? It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful. Look at what they're worried about. It is not lawful to carry your bed. You're kidding me. Religion's always looking at and focusing on the wrong things. That's what you're focusing on? The guy's carrying his bed? Forget about the fact that he hasn't walked in 38 years. He's leaping, jumping, and walking. You're worried about he's carrying his bed? Man, religious people always just focus on the most trivial things. Verse 11, he answered them and said, 
He who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. I'm just doing what God told me to do. That's what he's saying. He goes, I'm just doing what God told me to do. I know you're mad about it. I know religion hates it, but hey, God told me to do this. So if you don't like it, oh well. If you don't like it, I was hurting, I was broken. You know when religious people come at me and make all these videos? Friend, just I just want you to think about this. I was an atheist. I was not looking for God. I was went to church because my little sister begged me for six months. There was no interest in serving God or being a preacher. So when they make these videos about me, I'm like, I'm just doing what God call, called me to do. He literally told me to do this. So I, I don't care. It, like it's of no, Imagine not walking for 38 years and then religious people persecuting you, saying you're not allowed to walk and carry your mat on the Sabbath. Do you really think you'd care? Do you really think you'd care? You'd be like, I could honestly care less what you say because I've been lame, paralyzed for 38 years. Where were you? Religion wasn't there when I was lame, paralyzed. They weren't doing anything but hiding out in their churches. So now that I'm walking, you're mad. You weren't mad before that I was lame and paralyzed, but now you're mad. Then they asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Verse 13. I need to start doing some voice acting in this, okay? <laughs> Verse 13. But the one who was healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. So the, the religious leaders object 38 years. Where has religion been? And now that you're healed, religion wants to jump in and object. Think about this chat. Isn't it funny how all of your Christian, oh, I'm, I'm about to preach right here. All of your Christian family, they wanted nothing to do with you when you were in the world. They didn't talk to you about God. They didn't talk to you about revival. Think about this. Everyone stay with me. Your religious family never said anything to you about God. They didn't want, they never witnessed to you. They never evangelized. None of that. You get radically saved. You go from being on drugs, on the street, broken, hurting. You get radically saved. You're passionate. And now you're telling your family who's been in church their whole life about God. And they persecute you like, oh, you know, well, you know, not everybody's going to speak in tongues. And uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit is, you know, speaking in tongues and deliverance. That's not in the Bible and miracles. And it's like, dude, now you're going to talk to me about God? 38 years. You didn't even care about me. Religion didn't care about me. Now that I'm saved, friend, when I got saved, I had all my, I didn't know they were Christian, but party friends that were Christian sent me down. Oh, well, brother, you need to go to Bible college. I'm like, dude, we were literally drinking together last weekend. You've never told me about God. I get radically saved. I'm preaching in my living room. And now you want to meet me for breakfast. I literally had one of my party friends meet me for breakfast because he told me, oh, you got to go to Bible college. Oh, miracles aren't for today. I'm like, dude, I was drinking with you last week. And now here comes religion to tell me, like, get out of here, dude. Where were you for 38 years? And all your family is now Bible experts. All your cessationist family are Bible experts about how God doesn't heal anymore. God doesn't deliver. And I'm like, look at me. Wait, God doesn't deliver? I got delivered last week. Wait, God doesn't heal? I've seen God heal. Wait, God doesn't. What are you talking about? So these people all of a sudden want to butt in. But where was religion when you were on the streets? Come on. Where was religion when you were hurting? Where was religion when I needed someone to witness to me? Man, I'm telling you right now, religion just needs to shut its mouth. That's the bottom line. Miss me with all that religious garbage because you weren't nowhere to be found when Jesus came and healed me and delivered me. Verse 14. And if you're like, oh, don't be mean to the religious groups and people talk about, about them, go read Matthew 23. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. So the man gets healed and the byproduct of the man getting healed is the man goes to the temple. He, want, he has a desire to go find, who healed me? What is this? 
Jesus finds him in the temple and says, see, you've been made well, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Why are we not preaching this no more? Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Look at this. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he'd done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father's been working until now and I've been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So afterward, Jesus finds the man in the temple seeking the greatest gift of all, and that's the gift of salvation. And this is the words that, this is the words of Jesus. Let's just rationally think about this. What chapter and verse? This is John chapter five. We're on verse, we just finished verse 18. This is the, this is the word Jesus gives to the man. Stop sinning. Look at sin no more. One translation says stop sinning, lest the worst thing come upon you. Let's just ask this question logically. What could be worse than being paralyzed for 38 years? Crippled for 38 years. And Jesus says, you shouldn't keep sinning because something worse can happen to you. What's the worst thing? The worst thing is you can end up in hell. That's the worst thing. Friend, how is it we live our lives in sin and we think, well, I got saved. Once saved, always saved. I could just live my life in sin and nothing worse can happen and I'll be fine when I get on judgment day. Do you understand that you can think you're saved, live your whole life in sin, listen to the lie that once you receive salvation somewhere when you're 10 years old, that you are saved forever and live that lie and live in sin and disobedience to God and think that one day God's just going to open the gates of heaven to you. When in reality, Jesus says, sin no more, unless something worse comes upon you. What could be worse? What's worse is entering hell. That's what's worse. Jesus said, it's better to cut off your eye, cut it, gouge out your eye because it's better to enter hell with two it's better to enter heaven with one eye than to enter hell with two eyes it's better to cut off your hand because it's better to enter hell with two hands than enter uh, enter heaven with one hand than enter hell with two hands so the worst thing is stop sinning because there is a real place jesus warns about called the lake of fire this man this is one of my favorite statements of all time came with his back on a bed and left with his bed on the back with his bed on his back came when he encountered Jesus, he had his back on a bed, but when Jesus left him, he had his bed on his back. This is what Jesus did to you. Some of you tonight are going to leave with your mat. You're going to get up and walk. You're going to be delivered. You're going to be healed, not by Isaiah's power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's go to verse 19. A lot of these, we're going to be able to get through the next chapter too. That's going to be the longest portion. We'll get through the next half and chapter pretty quick because it's all pretty self-explanatory. Verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to him, so the next bit is going to be Jesus and the Pharisees going back and forth. Let's look at what Jesus has to say to the Pharisees. Verse 19, then Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do for what he does. The son also does in like manner for the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he himself will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Verse 21, for as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he will. Verse 22, for the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son that all should honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. So Jesus, they basically accuse Jesus of blasphemy and Jesus does not try and deny their claims of blasphemy. Instead, Jesus explains and describes his relationship with the father. Okay, so this is his definition. He says, the son does nothing of himself. So Jesus says, I'm not doing anything. My will is not my will. I'm only doing the will of the father. Not only that, he only does what he sees the father do. So the father is Jesus' example. 
The father also raises the dead, so Jesus also raises the dead. Now, the people he's talking to knew who the father was, God, and that being God the father, part of the triune Godhead. So he's speaking language they understand. The father judges no one, we also know this, but has committed all judgment to the son. We should honor the son as they honor or as we honor the father. This is what Jesus is telling them. And if you do not honor the son, you're not honoring the father who sent them. So Jesus is explaining his critical intimate divine relationship with his father jesus equally god the father equally god the holy spirit equally god all three members of the trinity all distinct persons all equally god and this is the relationship that jesus has with the father right here he's explaining this to us now people say jesus never claimed to be god now the jewish leaders knew only the father can raise people from the dead and only the father can judge people at the final judgment so by jesus claiming he can raise the dead and do all the judgment he's claiming to be god someone wrote in my comments today jesus never claimed to be god he claims to be god all throughout the gospels and this is a sign this is also another place where jesus claims to be god by saying i'm going to be the one at the judgment seat of christ judging because the father's given me the judgment and also i can raise whom i want to raise from the dead now the point of it is this this is the point of what jesus is telling them you can't have the father god the father without jesus this jesus the son of god you can't have jesus without the father and you can't have the father without jesus if we reject jesus we're also rejecting the father now if we reject the father we're also rejecting jesus so in the jewish mindset here they were like we accept the father but we don't accept his son jesus and jesus goes if you don't accept me you also don't accept the father so jesus is highlighting this unique relationship him, him and his father have let's go to verse 24 let's go to 27. most assuredly i say to you he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life so how do you what what do you how do you gain everlasting life he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death to life this is like a right now thing but it has passed from death to, into life most assuredly i say to, to you the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of god and those who hear will live for as the father has life in himself he also granted the son to have life in himself and he's given him authority to execute judgment also uh x-men judgment also because he is the son of man so jesus is saying now the hebrew scriptures teach that eternal life happens after people are raised from the dead at et- at, at the final judgment Jesus says eternal life is available right now to those that believe. So there's two resurrections. There's the resurrection from when you're dead in sin to being alive, which is eternal life. And remember, death means separation. So dead in sin, alive with eternal life right now. And then Jesus also talks about his own resurrection, which is the life of God that is inside of him. Okay, verse 28 through 30. Uh, Here we go. Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming, which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come uh those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil the resurrection of condemnation which we know there's heaven and there's hell verse 30 i can of myself do nothing as i hear i judge and my judgment is righteous because i do not seek my own will but the will of the father who sent me again jesus is reiterating the will of the father is the one that sent him one commentator said this in spite of what some people teach death is not the end we do not just breathe our last breath and go into oblivion rather death is the beginning of a new life that will last forever in either heaven or hell So you will live forever somewhere, heaven or hell. Jesus continued the list of resurrections by referring to the future resurrection of the dead believers to eternal life and the resurrection of the dead unbelievers to judgment. Both will happen when he returns. Jesus here again, driving home the point that he is God. Verse 31, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. 
There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has bore witness to truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was burning, talking about John the Baptist here, if you're kind of lost. He was burning. He was the burning and shining lamp that you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Okay, so John the Baptist. So Jesus says, I'm not witnessing of myself only. You accepted John the Baptist. John the Baptist was also a witness to me, and he was a burning, shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a time in his light. So Jesus goes, I'm not here by myself testifying. John the Baptist also, who you accept, testified of me because they're accusing Jesus of being blasphemous for saying he's the son of God. Verse 36 here. So he's talking about John testifying about him, but I have a greater witness than John. So Jesus is a witness. John's a witness. Now he goes, I have a greater witness than John for the works with the father has given me to finish the very works that I do bear witness of me that the father has sent me. So now another witness. So now Jesus is his own witness. John's a witness. Now also the miracles are a witness that he is God and that the Father has sent him. So he says, the Father has sent me and these works bear witness of me. So now miracles are also, are also a sign Jesus is God and was sent by the Father. Okay, verse 37. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. So now, now we have Jesus testify to himself. John the Baptist testifying to himself. The miracles testifying of Jesus or testi uh, John the Baptist testifying to Jesus. The miracles testified to Jesus. Now, verse 37, Jesus adds, the father has testified of me. Okay, so now every, it's no, it's, there's no doubt here. He says, you've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Verse 38, but you do not have his word abiding in you because he whom sent him, he who he sent, you do not believe. You, oh, this is so good. Verse 39, I want to camp out here. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are that which testify of me. But you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. Jesus says, you look to the scriptures. So all of these things that testify of me, I testify of myself. This is Jesus speaking, obviously not Isaiah. Jesus says, I testify of me. John the Baptist testifies of me. The miracles testify of me. The Father testifies of me, and you don't believe my testimony. He says, and you don't realize because you're searching the scriptures, thinking that in these sacred texts, you're going to find eternal life, but realize the scriptures testify about me. So Jesus introduces five witnesses that undeniably announce this is the Messiah. The son of God is God. Yet you search for scriptures thinking in them you find life. This is the modern day church. We look from the Bible front to back, yet we don't have eternal life, yet we're still spiritually dead. There's so many people that know the Bible by heart. There's no life of God in them. There's no hunger and thirsting for righteousness. There's no fruit in their life, yet they know the Bible front to back. How many times do you see people that are uh, pastors that have been through Bible college, and then now they say, oh, I'm an atheist now. I used to be a Bible teacher. I used to be, I went through Bible college, now I'm an atheist. Why? Because they thought that in the scripture, they'd have eternal life. And too many people rely on the Bible instead of relying on God. Some of the most unbelieving people know the Bible the best because they worship the scripture. But please make it very clear tonight. Don't twist what I'm about to say. God did not give us the scripture so that we can make an idol out of the scripture or a God out of the scripture. The scripture is not God. We don't worship the scripture. The book is to get us to know the author. That's the goal. The goal is the author. And so many people look for life in the scripture, but don't realize life is not in the scripture. Life is in Christ. It's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not the Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. 
The scripture was never meant to be prayed to. It was never meant to be worshiped and it was never meant to be idolized. It was a, it was made to explain what God is like, how God functions, God's story, to let us know God through Jesus, how God wants to have a personal relationship through what Jesus did on the cross with us. But we have made theology a God in America and the study have uh, the study of God, I'm speaking facts, has replaced the worship of God, has replaced getting to know God. So now we don't tell people get to know God, we tell them get to know your Bible, just know the Bible. But there's no there's never an intimate relationship with god so yes know the bible yes read the bible and don't come up here oh you don't believe the bible friend i i'm not weird flexing here i've read the entire new testament in one sitting on stream so of course i believe the. i'm literally preaching the bible verse by verse so get out of here with the are you telling me i shouldn't get to know the bible what i'm saying is stop thinking that if you memorize and know the scripture that that's eternal life when it has to do with relationship with the person the book's about. It's about an author. That's the story. It teaches you about the author and we need to get to know the author. And so many people know scripture, but don't know God. That's the bottom line. And they look to find verse after verse proving why they don't need to have relationship with God. Yet in the Bible, we know, according to this, is that we don't find life in the scripture, we find life in Jesus. So let the Bible, and you'll have a very healthy relationship with the scripture if you stop thinking that that's where you're gonna find life. The scripture points to God, but we need to get to know God. So this idea of like, oh, we don't ever need to pray and there's nothing supernatural about God, he's just cold, and this is a history book, is not the way. That's not the way. Those people are only doing it because they only know the Bible, but they don't know God. And the goal is not just to know the Bible, but to know God as well. That's like, if you know the whole Bible, but don't ever get to know Jesus, then you're missing the entire point, which people do all the time. So we have to be very careful that we don't elevate theology over God. And we don't make the worship, I'm sorry, we don't make the study of God become an idol. Because that's what theology is, it's the study of God, which I love. I have a degree in theology. I went to Bible college for four years to learn about theology and get a degree in theology. But I'm not gonna elevate theology at a place where it's more important than relationship with Christ. It's just not the case. John 5, 41 through 47. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. This is Jesus speaking to Pharisees, by the way. I've come in my father's name and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive. How can you believe who, re who you receive honor from another and do not seek the honor that comes from only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, this is the key here. If you're confused, this is the key. You believed Moses, you'd be, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So they claim to believe Moses, but Jesus goes, Moses wrote about me. Like, how could you say you believe M Moses when Moses was the one that testified and wrote about me? All right, why don't we, if you, want, if you guys want to power through chapter 6, why don't we type one in the chat if you guys want to go through verse six? I think we should try to knock out verse six here. It's pretty self-explanatory. It's not a lot of um, a lot of teaching in it. It's just a lot of Jesus, again, making statements. And so if you guys want to knock out verse six, I think type one in the chat. We'll go longer. I know we've been almost an hour, but we can do one chapter a week because we'll be here until I'm like 90 years old. Okay, so let's go to let's go to chapter six here. We'll go right into it. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is in the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him. This is a lot of storytelling here because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were deceit on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews was near. 
Okay, so Jesus crosses over the Sea of Galilee. The crowds are following him. He can't get away from the crowds. And they follow, they're following him with the hopes to see more miracles. Verse 5. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and saw a great multitude coming towards him. He said to Philip, where should we buy bread that these people may eat? That these may eat. But this he said to test him. He himself knew what he would do. Look at this, verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Okay, so scholars say there was about 15,000 people here, including women and children. And Philip basically says, and again, this is, I'm just giving you example, um, description of the storytelling here philip basically says we don't have that kind of money it would be eight months salary to be able to feed all these people okay so they're like one in mark six they say send the people away we don't we can't feed these people and jesus says feed them and they say send them away so the idea is there's not enough we don't have enough food of what this little boy has for everybody but i'm telling you right now what we're going to see in this story is god always has more than enough for everyone we have this idea that if God does a miracle in someone else's life, like we have a scarcity mentality. There's not enough for God to do it in my life. Or if God promotes Isaiah or if God promotes another preacher, God can't promote me because God already promoted him. We always have this scarce mentality that there's not enough blessing or provision or enough uh, power or enough anointing. Like there's not enough. If God heals five people in the service, he can't heal 10 people. But what we're going to see in this story is God has infinite power infinite resources and there's enough to go around god has enough power enough promotion enough blessing enough enough love for every single person a thousand times over on earth to be healed delivered blessed whole and fed so if you're spiritually hungry now these people are physically hungry but if you're spiritually hungry there's enough of jesus for you tonight okay just because one person gets a blessing we always think that someone else can't. And I've, I've fallen into this i see god promote a preacher or a youtuber or whatever i'm like oh man I wish I could get those views or numbers or whatever it is. And it's like, dude, there's plenty to go around. God, can, If God's going to bless him, he could also bless you. So there's enough of God a thousand times over. Look at verse 10 here. Then Jesus said, make these people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Okay, 5,000 men. They didn't count the women and children. Historians say about 15,000. Okay, we don't know exactly. Uh, just think of a crowd of 15,000 people. And then Jesus, look what he does, took the loaves, and when he given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those that were sitting down. So notice the order. Jesus distributes the food to the disciples. The disciples distribute the food to people sitting down. Jesus did not directly distribute the food to the people. This is prophetic here. This is symbolic here. Much of this is symbolic. All throughout scripture, Jesus uses symbolism. So it was actually the disciples that were going to the hungry. Are you guys catching this tonight? Are you guys catching this? They were going to the hungry people and giving them, and the people had as much fish as they wanted, verse 12. So when they were filled, that's, again, symbolic and prophetic. They were filled. He said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so nothing is lost. All of this is symbolic and prophetic as well. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled the 12 baskets with fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. So Jesus gives thanks. So I want to, I want to give you this lesson here. If you don't have enough, if you don't have much, if you don't feel like you have what it takes, if you have a couple loaves and a couple fish, you, you should still give thanks. Give thanks is always the best step if you want to see God multiply things in your life. So he gives thanks. Then Jesus distributes the bread, gives the bread to the disciples. But notice what the text says. 
the disciples distributed it out. We have the word of God, the bread of life. We have the bread of life and we are called to distribute it to the hungry people. We are called to distribute the gospel to spiritually hungry people. People are spiritually starving and God is saying, will you feed them? Now, not only are we called to distribute the gospel to them, but there's also leftovers. So like when you go to church and hear a powerful word or experience a powerful move of God, you should bring leftovers home. You should have leftovers. Like when I'm, when you're in this broadcast, you should have leftovers to bring to your friends and family tomorrow. You should take this message to them because the word of God is too good for us just to eat it and leave it. He says, make sure you gather up the leftovers so nothing is lost. So there is leftovers when it comes to the things of God. If you're hungry tonight, there's more than enough for you. You can eat till you're full. This is the gospel message. You can eat till you're full. You can be filled to overflowing. There's always enough. And all you preachers that are watching this, you, I'm sure you're like thinking of 20 sermons that you can preach through this because it's as a preacher, it's hard to go this fast, but we're going for it here. Verse 14. Then those men, when they seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So now they're believing that Jesus is the prophet that's coming into the world, but they're going to see he's more than a prophet. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself. What is this all about? This is about them wanting to make Jesus a political savior. Jesus multiplies, feeds all of them. They're looking for someone to overthrow Rome, Rome looking for someone to feed the poor. So now they want to make Jesus their political king. But Jesus departs because Jesus did not come to be a political king. Jesus came to be a spiritual king, a spiritual savior, not a political savior. And we see that all through the gospels. Verse 16, excuse me. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into the boat and they went over to Capernaum. So Jesus is not with them. It was already dark and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose and there was a great wind and that was blowing. There was a storm, okay? So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they, were will then they willingly received him into the boat. And look at what it says here. Most people don't catch this. And immediately the boat was at land where they were going. So two miracles take place here. First of all, this is the first time Jesus walks on water. The disciples see him walk on water and they're afraid. Jesus says, don't be afraid. But the other miracle is, look at this. The moment Jesus gets into the boat, they're instantly on the other side. The moment Jesus enters the boat, this is what the Bible says. Immediately, the boat was at land where they were going. So they're in the, think about how crazy this is. They're in the middle of the storm. This is, I'm preaching to somebody tonight. They're in the middle of the storm. Jesus shows up. They're instantly taken out of the storm and they arrive at their destination all within a second. The storm's instantly over and they instantly arrive. This is the power of God. We miss this. We, don't, we want to talk about miraculous. If you're in a storm, God goes, I could literally take you out of the storm, change the storm, and bring you to your destination in one second. This is the power that Jesus has, and we're seeing this displayed all through Scripture here. Verse 22, on the following day, when the people were standing on the other side of the sea, they saw that there was no one there, no other boat there except that one, which his disciples entered. So the people, I'm going to try to make this simple for you because it, it sounds complicated, they're, they're looking at, there's only one boat. It was the boat the disciples went in. Where was Jesus? Because they're all looking for Jesus. Okay, they don't realize he walked on water and got in the boat with the disciples. Verse five, which his disciples had entered and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, look at this. Other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they got into boats and they came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So everybody's, 
the 5,000 he fed, they're all looking for Jesus. They're all like, wait, we see the disciples' boats. Where's Jesus? Jesus is constantly coming in and out, going to be with his father, going to the mountaintop, appearing, reappearing. Here Jesus is, and they're looking and seeking Jesus because of the signs. So the next morning, naturally, they're curious. Where did Jesus go? And they're searching. Verse 25. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they finally find him. What are they going to say to him? Look at this. Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So the reason why you're looking for me is because you're looking for to be naturally filled by bread. You're looking for someone to feed you in a natural sense. You, you're not worried about, not because, you, the, not because you saw the signs that point to the fact I am God and I am the Messiah, but you're just looking for something to temp temporarily fill you. Verse 27, do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has sent his seal on him. So don't look and labor for natural things, but spiritual things. This is what Jesus is saying. The people are looking for Jesus, looking for Jesus for all the wrong reasons. They don't care that he's claiming to be God or the miracles authenticated him. They're interested again in physical bread. And Jesus says, this is the answer. This is the work of God. So let, let's go here. I'm sorry, verse 27. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Okay. Then they said to him, what shall we do? This is the question. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? So they're like, hey, we want to work the works of God. We want eternal life. We want to do miracles. What do we do? Verse 29, Jesus answered and said, this is the works of God, that you believe in him who he sent. This is the works of God. You're saying, what do we have to do to earn this? This is the question. We have to earn this. What do we need to do so we could work the works of God? What, what, just tell us. And he goes, it's not work. We don't work for it. This is the works of God. You just have, you just have to believe. Like, don't be mistaken. This is not a works gospel. The, the truth is you just need to believe. That's what this is all about. You're following Jesus. You're looking and God says, I want you to just believe tonight. Stop stressing out about everything and just believe. That's eternal life. Verse 30. Therefore, they said to him, what sign shall you perform then that we may see and believe you? They're again asking for a sign. What works will you do? Our fathers ate the man in the desert as is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So the people are basically saying, can you top what our father did? Moses had bread in the wilderness, manna in the desert. So can you top that? That's what they're asking Jesus to do. Top, what's the sign? Are you going to top Moses? And then Jesus says this, look at in verse thir uh, 32. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. So th they, they said, oh, Moses gave us bread. And Jesus goes, well, let's make this one thing clear. It wasn't Moses. It was God that gave bread. My father's the one that gave the bread. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus is the bread that's come down from heaven. This is now a spiritual thing, not a physical thing. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, and they still don't get it. They still don't get it. After all he's done, all the miracles, the multiplication, the healing, the boy that was almost dead, uh, all these miracles, they still don't get it. They said, Lord, give us this bread. They're, uh, they're thinking of natural bread. And then Jesus says this, one of the most powerful statements in the Bible, verse 35. I am the bread of life. The same type of I am, when he said, who sent me? When Moses says, who sent me? And God said, say the I am sent you. Jesus is saying here, I am God. That's what he's saying. For those who say Jesus never claimed to be God, this I am statement, scholars say, was Jesus saying, I am God. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So you'll never hunger, never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me and yet you do not believe. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I shall not lose. I should lose nothing, but shall raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and he'll raise him up in the last days. This is the key here. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I'll raise him up in the last days. They're saying, Jesus, can you top what Moses did? And Jesus is going, all of these miracles are validating that I'm the Messiah. I am God, and I'm not going to provide you physical nourishment like you're looking for. I'm going to provide you something infinitely better, and that is spiritual nourishment. And let's look at verse 41. Then the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which comes down from heaven. And they said, it is not this, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? Where his father, whose father and mother we know, how is it then that he says, I've come down from heaven? So again, like Nicodemus, they don't understand. We know his earthly parents. How is it possible he's come down from heaven? Because they don't understand he's born of a virgin. The Holy Spirit impregnated Mary. So they're trying to understand intellectually what can only be understood by faith and spiritually. So we try to intellectualize. We explain the Trinity. Well, how could God, how could Jesus be a man and be God at the same time? How could Jesus be God, but the Father be God and the Holy Spirit be God? We try to intellectualize and figure it out in a, uh, like a physical sense. These are spiritual realities that our finite mind cannot under, understand or cannot be described. Verse 43, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father sent him, sent me, draws him, and I'll raise him up in the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen the Father, except he is from God, he has seen the Father. Most surely I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. So he's, he's reiterating what he just said. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that may, one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that he shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews quarreled among themselves. How can this man give us flesh to eat? So they, again, they don't understand because they're thinking physically. They're thinking intellectually. Then Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me, I live because of the father. So he who feeds in, on me will live because of me. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Jesus is saying, now the Jews listening to Jesus were thinking literally, Jesus is speaking figuratively. He's not promoting cannibalism. He's saying, understand there's a new covenant. There's a new thing happening where my body will be broken. My body, and this is why we take communion, will be the bread. And the phrase, again, if taken literal, would discuss the Jewish people. Because drinking blood was a law forbidden by the, uh, for a sin, gross sin, forbidden by the law of Moses. You were not allowed to drink blood, and of course, you're not allowed to eat flesh. So this was completely offensive to them. But again, they're not seeing the spiritual connotations of it. One commentator said, bread, in order to benefit us, must be taken into our, li into our li lives and assimilated. By analogy, 
Jesus, like the bre- we eat bread physically, must be taken into our lives in faith and assimilated. It doesn't do any good to look at Jesus and not take him into our lives. Just like it does no good to look at a loaf of bread and not eat it. So if you see, if you're starving and you look at a loaf of bread, it doesn't help you to look at it. It helps you if you put it into your body. Jesus was saying that I'm going to come into you. I'm going to be a part of you. I'm going to abide in you and you're going to abide in me. And this is something they didn't understand because again, they weren't spiritual. The Pharisees were looking to the text. They were looking at everything intellectually, everything naturally. Well, this wasn't in the text. We don't understand. And that same thing happens today with Pharisees. These Pharisees were looking at that and saying, this makes no sense. And then look at one of my favorite places in the entire Bible is right here. Verse 60. Therefore, because of what he said was a hard statement, they don't understand it. And this is what we do. And we don't understand what God's telling us to do, or we don't understand God. We run. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a hard saying. No one can, who can understand it? When they, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said, does this offend you? What then if you should see the son of man ascend where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Again, this is spiritual. You're trying to understand the flesh. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak are spirit and they are life. These, again, these are not natural things, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him by the father. From that time, many of the disciples went back and walked with him no more. Some translations say many people deserted him. The crowds left him. Then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? So basically everybody turns their back on Jesus, walks away from Jesus. He looks at the 12 and says, do you also want to go away? This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. But Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, did I not choose you 12? And one of you is a, de- is a devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him being w- one of the 12. This is what Peter was saying. Peter was saying, Jesus, we've given up everything. We've laid down our lives. You are the one that has the words of eternal life. No one else and nothing else makes us fill this way, this life that we feel, this power that we feel, this purpose that we feel. Where would we go, Jesus of Nazareth? We've already given up everything. We've left our jobs. We've left our friends. We've left our family. You're the only one that we're going to serve. You're the only one that's going to follow. And I believe tonight that is the theme of what we are saying. Lord, where would we go? I have no desire to backslide. I have no desire to turn on you. You're the only one with the words of eternal life. Jesus is the one that has the words of eternal life. Let us pray tonight. Maybe you are spiritually blind. Maybe you are spiritually lame. Maybe you are spiritually paralyzed. And Jesus is coming tonight and saying, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made healed? Do you want to be made whole? Now we know that Jesus is, according to chapter six, the bread of life. We can con- we should have done communion tonight. We can consume Jesus. Jesus can enter into our lives through the person of the Holy Spirit. And all we have to do is believe on him. What works, they said, must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus said, just believe. That's the works. There's no mustering up works. There's no trying to earn our way in. We cannot earn this. Jesus said, just believe. That is the goal. That is the plan. So tonight, Father, we come before you hungry. We come before you humble. And just like those people we read about that were physically hungry, we come, Lord, spiritually hungry for you hungry to experience you, to encounter you, to know you, to get to know you through the word of God. I pray, Lord, for those that are in this chat that are spiritually blind. 
I pray that you would open up their eyes tonight. I pray right now that you would open up the eyes of those that are blind in this broadcast right now. I pray you would open up the ears of those that are spiritually deaf tonight. I pray, Lord, those that are lame, literally just lame, they just don't do anything with their lives, they don't go anywhere in God, they can't walk out the call that you've placed on their life, I pray that you would heal every spiritually lame person. Father, we don't want to be lame Christians. We don't want to be lame disciples. We don't want to be spiritually lame. I just pray healing, boldness, and wholeness. I pray those that are paralyzed, you've been in the same place for an extended period of time. It's been years, and you have not gone anywhere in God. You've not advanced anything in God, and you're just stuck in the same place. I pray that tonight you would get unstuck in Jesus' name, that you would no longer be stuck. You would no longer be in the same place, but you'd look back January of next year, and there would be incredible progress in God. Lord, we want to progress. I want to progress. I don't want to be lame. I don't want to be paralyzed. I don't want to be blind. Lord, if I've been lame or paralyzed or blind, I pray tonight, heal me in Jesus' name, Lord. I pray tonight, let the scales fall off of your eyes. No longer stuck. Maybe you're stuck in depression. Maybe you're stuck in fear. Maybe you're stuck in unforgiveness. Maybe you're stuck in bitterness, but no more. No more in Jesus' name. I don't want to be stuck any longer. Lord, I pray tonight that you would deliver us, that you would heal us. That every unclean spirit that's causing us to be paralyzed, the spirit of fear that's paralyzing you, the spirit of anxiety that's paralyzing you, the spirit of anger that is paralyzing you, the spirit of addiction that is paralyzing you, destroying your life, I just pray right now that you'd be delivered in Jesus' name. Satan, you are a liar. Leave these people now in Jesus' name. Leave these people now in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray that you would deliver us from evil right now. I pray you would heal us. I pray every unclean spirit would be driven out by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, healing, deliverance, and breakthrough right now in Jesus' name. Lord, do what only you can do. Lord, do what only you can do in the mighty name of Jesus. Let your power flow. Let your anointing flow. Let your fire flow. Holy Spirit, have your way right now. Holy Spirit, have your way right now. Move in this place. Move in this place. Heal bodies. Those that are sick in body, I pray that you'd be healed right now in Jesus' name. Those that have never been filled with the Holy Spirit or baptized in the Holy Spirit, I pray you'd be filled right now in Jesus' name. Be filled right now in Jesus' name with the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you'd break religion off of us. Some of you that are in doubt and unbelief, you're always trying to intellectually understand everything. You worship theology. You worship the Bible instead of the author. I pray, God, that you would deliver us from this religious spirit. I pray you deliver us from being religious. Lord, that we don't want to be like the religious people that you rebuked but we want to be whole in our mind. We want to be whole in our spirit. We want to be free. We want to be free from these lies the enemy has given us in Jesus' name. Free us tonight from religion. These religious mindsets that constantly question you. How are we going to tell God he can't? Stop telling God he can't do it. Lord, we're tired of telling you, you can't heal us. You can't deliver us. You can't move. We're not good enough. We're not educated enough. We're not this enough. We're tired of saying you can't. Lord, we know you can. You can do all things. You can do all things. So in Jesus' name, deliver us tonight. In Jesus' name, heal us tonight. And just bring breakthrough every, every person listening. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. What an awesome night tonight, guys. That Thank the Lord that we got through two chapters. We've been trying to get through two chapters because we're going to be doing this entire book of John. And it will take us 
a year or more if we don't get through at least two chapters a week. So we're going to do our best. Some of the storytelling will go through um, quicker. Like that last chapter, there's not a lot to explain. It's very self-explanatory what Jesus was saying, but we're going to move right along. And then some of them stories will preach. Some of them will just explain through stories and we'll give some variation. And then we'll be adding other streams as well to give variation. Prayerfully, next week we'll be launching the new studio. Also, if you don't know, the links to give are right on screen. If you want to give, you can give. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. If you like what you heard, go to www.isaiahsaldivar.com for more content. And please follow me on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Isaiah Saldivar. See you next week.